crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humble brags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello. And welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. Welcome also to the future, the year 2022. I hope you've had the holiday season you were after, whether that's welcoming as many COVID-free family members as possible, or taking some time just to rest and reflect. I imagine that actually many of you didn't get the holiday you were hoping for, but a new year is always a good time for a new beginning. So let's put that behind us and look forward to the lengthening days and the arrival of spring unless you're listening in the Southern Hemisphere, in which case I'm afraid it's all downhill from here. As you probably already know, I'm Matt Georges, but you won't know my guests for this episode. So for the first Serendipity Soup of 2022, I'm talking to Alan Butler, who has at various points in his career been an economist, a primary school teacher and a herdsman on a dairy farm, amongst many other jobs. A lot of our conversation revolves around forks in the road, the times when, because of personal or work circumstances, Alan has found himself having to choose between very different paths towards his future. But Alan is also very open about his diagnosis, late in life, of dyslexia, and how that undiagnosed condition has shaped his life and career to date. Interestingly, despite the difficulties Alan has faced, what his experience shows is something I've noticed with a lot of people, including myself, who have a condition that needs managing. Take the strategies these people employ out of context and they bear a striking resemblance to the good practice that many coaches recommend to anyone who wants to improve their life or the way they work. Simple but often overlooked things, like getting a colleague to read and comment on a tricky email, or breaking down projects into tasks and planning your time carefully in advance. Okay, housekeeping. Pretty light this time round. My interview with Alan was recorded in March 2021, so there might be a few dated references, but I think on the whole it's fine. There's only one mild sweary hiding in the verbal jungle, so nothing much to worry about there. And also, as is often the case in my podcast, there's some talk about depression, but really not very much. If you want to skip over that, it's around the 40 minute mark. The episode does end quite abruptly because Alan developed a migraine as the recording went on, but other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. Hi, my name's Alan, Alan Butler, and I'm an economist for my sins. I work for the Environment Agency. Now I'm an economist, I've got a strong interest in complexity, complexity theory, systems thinking. And I've been working as an economist, I suppose, since I did my PhD back in year 2000. And I've had an interest in complexity since, well, since I did my PhD. So I was looking through your CV to prepare myself for the interview. And on your CV, it's got all your amazing agricultural economics experience, various universities and so on and so forth. And then at the bottom, it says herdsman, that you managed dairy herd. And I 
I just thought, blimey, because <laughs> it's not often you find an economist who's actually had a real job, especially an agricultural economist who's worked in agriculture. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe agricultural economics is a bit of a different thing and maybe they're a bit more down to earth. I don't know. What do you think? Um, I've not met a huge number of agricultural economists who've worked in agriculture. I think quite often they come from an agricultural background, so they might be farmers, sons, daughters. But again, that's quite a limited number. I worked in agriculture because of reasons of schooling. I came out of school with a good number of qualifications. I had, what, seven O-levels, as they were then, in old money. Very valuable, but the school systems in some ways have broken me in terms of my, how would I put it, in terms of my self-confidence. So I came out of school lacking confidence. I sort of left school and must have finished my exams in the June, July time. So I went along to the careers office and had a, an interview with the careers person. And they said, what sort of thing do you want to do? Do you want to work inside or outside? And I thought about it and I said, I've had enough of working inside. I'd like to work outside. And then he looked through his list and says, there's a possible job here on a farm. How does that sound? And I said, give it a go. That's what you do when you're 16, isn't it? You sort of shrug your shoulders <laughs> and then just sort of give it a go. I remember the interview very well. I must have sort of dressed up to some extent. And I walked onto the farm and it was this old Ricky type of farmyard, dirt and stones and you know, no tarmac or anything like that. I met the farmer and this was the extent of the interview. He looked me up and down. He said, quote him, you're a bit scrawny, but we'll give you a go. <laughs> <laughs> That's incredible. And you spent nine years on the farm. Not all the time on that farm, because I did take a break and worked on another farm for a year, just to get a bit more experience. And then a house came up on the farm that I'd worked on already, a sort of tied cottage. So I went back to the farm. He wanted me back, basically, so he offered me the cottage. Wow, okay. So you mentioned you left school not with a huge amount of confidence, which strikes me as odd, because you're the person I come to to ask advice on very complex economics. And in fact, I'm not the only one. A lot of people do that. So I just find it hard to square the person who I seek advice from with the person who left school not feeling confident in their, their ability. Well, I've only just discovered that I'm dyslexic and I didn't know that beforehand. Mm. And it sort of puts my school experience into perspective. It would have been about year five. that so It was my third year of junior school. And I think it was a newly qualified teacher. And because I couldn't read or write very well, when it came to sort of class reading, quite often you'd have to write something and then read it out aloud. And this would be, a, you know, quite a sort of weekly activity that she mm. would laugh at me. God. The rest of the class would then laugh with her. So this became quite a humiliating experience, which stayed with me in terms of quite a deep rooted feeling throughout my life. Mm. This is really quite important to sort of my journey later on in life. When I was in junior school, I can remember being a really happy child, a child that would get on with other children. Not the easiest, I don't think, in terms of emotions and things like that. But I quite enjoyed school at that really young age. Mm. 
And it wasn't until sort of this experience in junior school where my confidence dropped like a lead balloon, as they might say. And I suppose that affected the rest of my schooling. And if it wasn't for one teacher in the secondary school in my first year, I don't think I probably would have ever got out of agriculture. I think he was doing his master's and I was part of his master's project. <laughs> so he chose three of his uh, students. So there was myself, there was the brightest girl in the class and there was a girl in the class who struggled, I think, with her education in different ways. And I think what he identified potentially was something in me in the sense that if he put specialist teaching in, he'd move me further than he'd move the bright girl and the other girl that he chose. So we all did the same sort of specialist intervention, if you like. In that first year, my grades went up for English, because he was an English teacher, went up enormously from where it started to the end of the year. I did very well in that year. And even though I was still low in confidence, that enabled me to sort of just hang on throughout the rest of secondary school which is what I did and you know the other thing with secondary school which caught me out a bit was because being dyslexic which I didn't know at the time my handwriting was appalling so my maths teacher he decided to not read my writing and told me to write neat if I wanted my answers marked so being at what 12, 13 year old child, I thought, well, there's no point in me handing you my work in wow. <laughs> because it's not going to mark it. <laughs> so I didn't. So actually, I went from being one of the best in maths at school when I started, I was something like third in the year, to struggling to get my O level as I passed out the other end. So it's these sort of school experiences that sort of led me to ending up in farming. It's an incredible thing, Alan, because it shows what a difference a teacher can make either way. Yes. And one example of very inspired teaching. Yes. And also just amazing how the maths that you were so good at and then were completely discouraged from is core to your job now. Such a shame. It really is. I think the teachers, they influence you in ways in which I think at the time you don't realise. It's only when you get older you can go back and look, reflect on your education as you think yes that affected me this way or that way where was this by the way Solihull Solihull okay so you've grown up there you finished your O levels and you've headed into dairy farming yes did you enjoy it I did a summer of working as a farm laborer and this was on a mixed arable farm and it was backbreaking it was hard hard work I mean <laughs> did you find that it was hard work. I started on a farm which was a mixed farm, so it grew some cereals, had some beef cattle, and it had the dairy as well. Mm. I suppose in some ways it was quite an old-fashioned dairy. It's what they called a breast parlour, so the cows get up on a step. You stick your shoulder into the side of the cow and then stick the, the cluster uh, on the udders of the cow, sort of from a sidewards movement. And sort of the more modern ones, the cows are up above you. The farm I worked on, his uncle worked on the farm, but his uncle, he must have been in his 70s. And he liked his drink. So he'd be quite drunk normally when he was milking the cows in the morning and <laughs> things would get missed. He probably took me on 
to replace his uncle at the milking because it wasn't long before I was taught how to milk a herd of cows. And how that happened, I was with the farmer. We were milking together for about an hour. And then he said to me, oh, I'm just going to disappear for 10 minutes, Alan. I'm sure you can cope. You, you sort of know the roughly what to do now. And about an hour, hour and a half later, after I'd finished all the cows milking, he came back and says, did you do all right? Huh. <laughs> so it was, it was literally sort of probably an hour's maximum of training. <laughs> oh I've had to milk cows and it was hard. I suppose you build up your strength. I was used to carrying 50 kilograms on my back of cereal. It was heavy weight. Wow. And you used to have to mill the, the wheat and you put some molasses in and made it sticky and some other stuff in as well. And then you bagged it up in these huge Essin sacks. And then you sort of do this twisting movement and get this Essin sack on your back. And then you had to walk across a, a covered yard that was full of cow manure, so it was all uneven. And then at the other end, you would then go into the milking parlour and then you had to go up some steps so you could tip it into the hopper, which the cows would get their feed from. And it was about eight bags a day that you had to do. Oh, my goodness. You built your strength up and, you know, that could be quite backbreaking. But when you're working with cows, you're actually getting quite dirty as well. Mm. So you'd come home smelling, basically, quite <laughs> and there was no showers on the farm either so you had no choice but to you know once i got a car to get in the car and, <laughs> so, and smell and smell a bit so it wasn't really good that way <laughs> just while i was unconfident because i didn't have any girls in the car <laughs> roughly speaking you were on the farm for nine years roughly what year 82 to 91 the 80s basically yes yeah why after nine years did you so decide you'd had enough it must have been quite a gradual process in some ways when i finished school i suppose i was 17 i'd got i think it was a csc3 in english which is quite a low grade because i thought if i ever wanted to move on i would need a c grade minimum at o level in english so that's what i did and then i i tried a few night schools in terms of a levels while i was working on the farm and that was really difficult in the sense that I was working six till six, so six o'clock in the morning, getting up to milk the cows, finishing at six in the evening, quite often a little bit later, and then wow. going off to the local college to do a night class. Quite often I'd be asleep before halfway through the... <laughs> and I, I can remember falling asleep. I think it was psychology I was doing at the time. And I fell asleep and I woke up and the two young women opposite whom were laughing... They were very friendly young women, but they were laughing at me <laughs> because I'd fallen asleep in the middle of this. <laughs> so I did struggle and um, I kept giving up. But I think what drove me on was I was walking the streams and the rivers, which is quite good for now working in the Environment Agency, I guess, and wondering about how does this sort of the ecology grow? Why does it grow? Why do these plants grow in those places? You know, what are those insects? Why do they pollinate on those type of things? I had all these questions buzzing around my head. I'd learned as much as I suppose I was wanted to learn about farming and I couldn't see a future in farming because I was a farm worker. I had no money behind me or anything like that. So, you know, any sort of dreams of getting myself a small holding or a herd of something or other, it's just sort of pipe dreams. And I think that you realise that. The key moment which really drove me on was when my boss 
gave me a bollocking. I forget what I did. I had done something. Maybe it was, I was pretty rubbish at tractor driving and I might have taken another chunk out of a tyre and they're quite expensive. And he gave me a bollocking. But he said, because my house was tied, he says, if you lose your job, you lose your house. And I thought, I I don't want to be in that situation. That's Uh, a real threat, that is. It it was a real threat. It was a bit like when he knocked on my window on polling day and said, are you going to go and vote? You are voting Tory, aren't you? (laughs) Working on the farm, there was always this expectation that you'd follow what the farmer did. I suppose in my mind, my mind was going in other directions. And I think the threat of losing the house was actually me sort of realising I had to do something. So I went back and did a couple of A-levels in night school. And because my reading at that stage, because of my school experience, wasn't particularly good and my writing wasn't particularly good either, I happened, by chance, I suppose, I don't know, I heard some radio programme talking about a guy called Tony Buzzan. He does speed reading, but he was talking about mind maps at the time and using lots of colours and sort of having phrases on these mind maps. And I'd never come across anything like that. I'd never done it at school. They didn't do that type of thing in the 80s or late 70s. It really sort of struck a chord with the way that I could learn. So what I did, I sort of got as much information as I could from the the books we had for night class. I recorded myself speaking so I could listen to it in my headphones on the tractor. And I learned in a very bizarre way to get myself through a couple of A-levels. So my aim when I was working on the farm, was to go and do development studies at the University of East Anglia. And I thought that's what I wanted to do. And then I went for the interview at University of East Anglia. They said, oh, you'll need two Bs to get into this course. And I thought, okay, I need to look else. I need to think about a plan B. So I applied for some agricultural economics courses that had other subjects I was interested in, like environment economics and development economics and things like that. And they said, this was the University of Aberdeen, you'll need two Ds to get in. And I thought, well, at this stage, I was married. I was going through a divorce. <laughs> I had a child. I was working 12 hours a day, effectively. And I was trying to study for two A-levels in the evening. And I thought, I can get two Ds. I'm not sure I can get two Bs. I'll try to get two Bs, but I'm pretty sure I can get two Ds. And that would be my escape route, A, out of farming, B, away from a quite toxic marriage, and C, to give my daughter, who I'd applied for custody of, a fresh start as well. So I managed to get myself two Ds and off to university. Wow. And I think the real thing which people don't realise is when you're doing a evening class in an A-level, you're doing a sixth of the course that an A-level student would do in terms of the time that you get when you're actually face-to-face with the tutor. So I didn't have the luxury of all the time to study that an A-level student would have had. So actually to get those two Ds, to me, was almost as good as getting my PhD. So what you're saying, that you would have had one-sixth of the time that a more standard A-level student would have had. Yes. to study the same amount of material. Yes, you, you didn't study the same amount of material because you physically couldn't. So you, you had a sixth of the time, and of course you had a reduced syllabus in the sense that you covered a lot of it, but you didn't cover it in the same depth. I'm quite taken aback. I think my reaction to the situation that you've just outlined would not have been to say, 
I think I can get two Ds, it would have been to say, I think I'm going to give up on this. <laughs> I mean, it sounded like you had so much on your plate there. How did you stay focused enough even to get the grades you got? It sounds bad, but I think it helped that I was trying to escape a toxic marriage. Well, I got married in 1988 and I was divorced by 1991, which was the year I went to university. I needed distance between my ex-wife and myself. And the connection between us was our daughter, of course. And I still wanted her to see a daughter, but we were sort of still living in each other's pockets. There was a lot pushing me to be successful as I could be in, in a sort of escaping the situation. So getting those two A-levels, created myself lots of mind maps. I was going to the local shop in the village saying, how much discount would you give me for the 10, 20 C60 tapes? You know, those cassette tapes. Right. Because yeah. I, I was recording myself so much. You know, I was just going through them so quickly. Wow. <laughs> if it wasn't for the muck spreading, I wouldn't be here today, as they'd say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank goodness for that, I guess. The farm was somewhere around Solihull, is that right? Yes, if you've ever been up the M42, you've been straight through it. <laughs> okay, because you then went to university in Aberystwyth, so, yes. I mean, not a million miles away, but quite a long journey. Just the right amount of time. It was two and a half hours in the car, mm. about three hours on the train, and that was ideal for me to be able to bring my daughter back to see her mum, and, you know, I could see my mum at the same time, and... Far enough away for me to know that that was behind me. Yeah. If that makes sense. A literal sense of distance. Yes, yeah. a literal sense of distance. And it was fresh start for me. It wasn't that first year of university wasn't easy. And I think it wasn't easy because of the way that I'd got to university through my madcap methods of recording myself and the mind maps, because suddenly I had to write essays. I was still struggling with my reading and writing at that stage. And felt really tired a lot of the time because I was putting so much effort in just to try and understand things that were being written on the board and mm. taking it down in note form and reading the books that you had to read. Yeah. Did you have your daughter with you as well? Yes, I did. And when I went to university, it was a bit of a... I was so naive, I suppose, in many ways, because when I was on still working on the farm, I'd done my A-level exams. And I didn't tell my boss I was going to university until probably three weeks before I had to go. Mm. And I think part of that was my insecurity, not knowing how I'd react. And, mm. you know, he'd been good to me in many ways. And I sort of felt like I was letting him down. So I hadn't arranged the accommodation particularly well. So I'd found somewhere which was on the accommodation list. It was a little way out of Aberystwyth. I packed my car up on the day. I had arrived at this place and I walked in. And all you could smell was meat cooking. And this meat, it just stank the whole house out. So I stayed there a night and I made my excuses. I didn't have anywhere to go to live. I made my excuses and I left, making myself homeless. <laughs> so I was homeless, wow. car full of stuff, which I hadn't emptied, plus a daughter, <laughs> my daughter. Oh, my goodness. And Managed to get myself some holiday accommodation, which cost a fortune for a couple of weeks. And then I did manage to sort of, the university accommodations officer took pity on me and gave me a place on campus, which was good. Wow. <laughs> so well, there was a lot of naivety when I went to university and I hadn't expected the sort of, I suppose, the level of writing and the level of, yeah, it's, it was a step up from those A-levels that I did. It's a different sort of struggle. The, the idea that you would be able to 
put yourself through those A-levels and night school, considering everything else going on in your life, I don't think it's at all unreasonable to think that you could cope with anything after that. I think that you're being harsh on yourself when you say naive, but I see what you mean, that it's a different challenge and clearly one that, that had an impact on you. Yes. But that said, you graduated. So yes. you, what was your degree in? It was agricultural economics I was doing, but there was a big chunk of it, which was agriculture. But in the first year I failed, well, I didn't quite get the grade at agriculture. I was just 36% or something and you need to get 40%. And I should have gone back and retaken it. But I was working the summer to get some money because I had to pay my rent. I phoned up my tutor and said, is there any way around this? Can I just do more economic courses? And he says, oh, yeah, that's no problem. Done well, <laughs> nine years on the farm. And yet the agriculture bit was the bit that I failed. <laughs> so I got the prize for the best agricultural economic students as well. So that was quite a nice wow. finish off to the, the degree. Wow. And that's despite, were you still having trouble reading and writing at that point? I'd still having trouble writing, that's for sure. Reading, I'd got on top of, more or less, by then. Writing, I was still struggling with, and I was very conscious that my writing wouldn't always come across as sentences. There'd be words missing, there'd be ends of words missing. And I did make a conscious effort, rightly or wrongly, that when it came to the exams, I would make my work as illegible as possible but making sure what I wanted the marker to see was legible. That was to sort of hide my bad grammar. I had to do a bit of learning on dyslexia, find out a bit more about it. And so I'd spoken to people and they said, oh, it's not unusual at all for people to be diagnosed very late in life. And then I said, how can that be? You know, and they said, oh, people find coping strategy. They hide it extremely well or hide it maybe implies that you knew that there was a diagnosis to hide, but you definitely had something that you just described there. There was a weakness that you thought, actually, there's a way around this. And then you found that way around it. I find it incredible. Not only are you learning all this stuff, but you're also on top of that. There's this other layer that says, I've got all this information, but I have to be careful that I don't get marked down for the way I convey it. It sounds tough, very tough. Yeah, it, it, it was hard. And it wasn't until my son, he was diagnosed as dyslexic, and we had a bit of inheritance money, early inheritance money, because um, my in-laws are still with us, fortunately. He was diagnosed, uh, I suppose, about six years ago now. Right. And we sent him to a specialist school, which it was for dyslexic children, dyspraxic children. And the teacher said, the one thing that people don't realise about dyslexics is they have to work twice as hard to get to the same place as somebody who hasn't got it. There's always so much more effort that you have to put in. And I was putting the effort in. I was just thinking that I was just slow, I suppose. Slow at picking, not picking it up so much, but being able to sort of verbalise it and put it out in a way that made sense. What happened then? After that, you'd got your degree. Did you have an idea where you were going next? Well, I knew that when I was doing my degree, I wanted to get a PhD. I'd found myself in my elements, in a sense, I was learning. I was, And this is where that point I came back to about when I was in infant school came in. Because I remember what I was like before this teacher intervened in primary school mm. and, and sort of shot my confidence that actually I was a happy-go-lucky child who enjoyed learning. And I found that again when I was at university. I'd realised that's who I am. It wasn't 
the teenager that I was because of the struggles I was having. So I wanted to get a PhD. This is going to sound very strange. It was before student loans. <laughs> but I'd managed to save enough money to pay for my first year's fees at a part-time rate. So I could work part-time on my PhD, be a single parent at the same time. And actually the university, they did stump up the other part of the money for me. So I started on a full-time research. It's an MPhil at the time, but to go on to a PhD. So I spent a year at Aberystwyth researching what I was calling not-for-profit organisations and how they help rural development. And I did a course, Ecological Economics, with Professor Peter Midmore. He was my tutor throughout my undergraduate degree. And I didn't have to do the essay, but I did the essay. And he said to me, Alan, I think we need to rewrite your essay. Because I'd written it, I thought it was good, but actually it wasn't that good. And he literally spent several hours with me going line by line through it of how I could improve my writing. And he didn't have to do that at all. But he spent that time and I learned an awful lot about how to write in that few hours with him because he'd taken the time to show me, basically. Again, we're talking about the difference a good teacher makes, aren't we? Yes, and I'm still friends with him. He just retired from University of Aberystwyth. You're doing your PhD at Aberystwyth, is that right? I'd started doing some research at Aberystwyth and there was a couple of studentships that were being advertised. There was money to do a PhD up at Manchester. So I went for an interview at Manchester. Quite an informal interview, actually. It wasn't... Um, Did they look you up and down and say, you look a bit scrawny? It wasn't quite like that, but it was sort of more of a discussion. And they were willing to find some money for me to do this ESRC research. Uh, a math Ministry of Agriculture, as it was then, before and before DEFRA, they had scholarships and one came up at Exeter, which was on the sustainability of hill farming. And I thought, well, I'm interested in sustainability. And so I applied for that one and I, I won the award. So I moved down to Exeter to do my PhD. And when was this? This would have been 1995. Wow. I didn't even know what economics was then. <laughs> so University of Exeter, so you're happy to move around a bit from Solihull, West Midlands, over to Wales, down to Exeter. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's not jet set, but it's, it's no. not staying in one place either, is it? It was easy to move from Solihull. Aberystwyth, yeah. it was harder to move from because I'd made friends across there. But there was always a feeling of Welsh English. It was actually quite pronounced as well. I knew a lot of people that had lived in Aberystwyth for quite a long time. And even though they tried to mix and invite Welsh people to parties and things like that, only the English people would come and the Welsh people wouldn't come. It was still a quite a divided community and I think that was a spur to go down to Exeter. Well that is a shame that got you to Exeter and so you, it was a sustainability of hill farming. Yes. I mean that's quite a short PhD it's unsustainable right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I did use the maximum words <laughs> to say that. <laughs> Again something that struck me you were talking about your PhD and one of the things when we were discussing your dyslexia you pointed out that you'd had extremely good feedback on your PhD. Yes, I had. And again, I mean, you're talking about that, that idea that you'd have to work twice as hard to achieve the same level, but you're not achieving the same level. You're going above and beyond the expectations of the people who are marking your PhD, for want of a better phrase. Again, there's a lot of determination there, surely, to not just do well, but to do even better than that. Yeah, I think that my first year of my PhD probably helped because I met somebody got into a relationship that failed again, <laughs> ended up homeless again. 
And I think that had affected my studies in the first year. I was doing lots of reading, but I actually wasn't putting much down. Coming towards the end of the first year, I realised, actually, what I need to do, I just need to treat my PhD as a job. I knew that I had to structure it in such a way that at the end of the three years, when the money ran out, I would have submitted my PhD. I spent quite a bit of time getting a plan together, quite detailed plan of where I was going to take it and to work out my method that I was going to use. And I think once I'd done that, I was then able to stick to that plan and do the chapters as and when I wanted to, to get to the end goal. I created a critical path diagram of the different stages that I need to do, what I needed to do working at the same time, what would have to be done on its own. And I had this diagram above my computer. So I always knew exactly where I should be and if I was slipping behind or ahead. And I think it was knowing that I sort of faffed around in the first year to a certain degree that I couldn't afford to do that for the rest of the two years. So I sort of put a plan in place and I just stuck to it. And I suppose I drove myself on to get to the end. I think it helped that because the math, the level of finance that math gave you, just the stipend, as they called it, was actually quite generous at the time. So, this is the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food as well. Yes, the Ministry yeah. of uh, Agriculture, Fisheries and Food. They had a quite um, a generous stipend and I was one of the last students to go through it as well because it became DEFRA. Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs. Sorry. It's not serendipity soup anymore, is it? It's acronym soup. But that's okay. It's the government. It's not you. The government, yeah. So you kind of almost described that as a bit of a coping strategy. But looked at from my point of view, that's an amazing skill to have. To be able to plan three years of your life, critical path. This is what I need to do. This is when I need to do it. And then to stay on track, all very well doing your plan and then having good ideas. And then you just, I know what I'm like. I would kind of get bored of that very quickly. Coming back to what you were saying about dyslexia, that actually you did have to try at least twice as hard. I know people who've done PhDs that have taken them nine years, not three. Some people who never <laughs> even finish them. From one angle, it looks like a coping strategy, but actually that's a brilliant skill to have, to be able to plan yeah. like that. I think I had support from my supervisors. I was very lucky in that respect. The one was good on the technical side and the other was good on the theory side. They would read my work and comment on it, suggest improvements. So it was, I feel sort of quite blessed that I had two very good supervisors. And I suppose that, you know, for what Peter did with me in Aberystwyth in my writing, that had stuck with me. And I was putting those strategies in place as well when it came to doing the proofreading and I was interested in the topics that I was looking at, the subjects within the sort of sustainability. I found myself going into, I didn't know at the time, but I know now was elements of complexity theory and then some mathematical modelling as well. And I think all those elements, I was really infused by them. I was captivated by them. So it didn't feel like a job in many ways because I was really enjoying the interaction I was having with the subject matter I, I was studying. Once I'd got the three literature chapters written, I suppose that gave me the confidence. They were some big chapters. The rest of the PhD rested on those. And Mm. that meant that actually, I suppose it didn't feel quite as onerous as it might have done. So I think the planning that I did paid off throughout that period. And so once you got your PhD, you what did you do after that? Where did you head off after that? Uh, That's quite interesting because I... Got to a stage in the sort of my final year of doing my PhD 
and I'd been going to agricultural economic conferences and there were stand-up rows between academics. <laughs> so you get one academic say one thing, another academic cross room would stand up and say, that's completely rubbish and there'd be a stand-up row. And I said, I don't want to be in this environment. That's a very economics environment. The other day you circulated a piece from the New York Times, I think, uh, yes, yes. saying how that kind of aggression is something that people off. It puts women off in particular. That was the point of the article. But it doesn't just put women off. As you say, it's, it's not a particularly nice <laughs> environment to work in. No, so it was partly the sort of what I'd seen going on at the conferences, but partly I started to help at my daughter's school. So I'd actually... I'd be going in for a couple of hours a week, helping out with the children in her class. And I actually really enjoyed it. And I thought, mm. actually, I wouldn't mind doing this. And I suppose, thinking back to my own experience in primary school, I thought, actually, I can give these children quite a lot. I applied to do a primary school teacher training, which I was accepted on. Right. So the year after my PhD, I got a teacher training qualification in primary mathematics. <laughs> Did you, I hope this isn't a question that might offend you or any other teachers out there, did you not feel that you maybe wasted your PhD going to do something entirely different, <laughs> primary school maths? I mean, my kids are in primary school and my youngest is in primary school now. Those teachers are incredible. They do great things for him and they have done for my daughter. But it seemed like you were going in a totally different direction with your PhD. I enjoyed the teaching. I enjoyed doing the primary school teaching because it was, I had a really good group of fellow students and we got on really well. I loved learning about the way people learn. Mm. That was probably part of a journey for myself as well, seeing how I learned and I could put bits in places too, understanding myself. And I really enjoyed doing the, the teacher training course and I was applying for full-time jobs as a teacher, not thinking about a wasted PhD or anything like that, because I'd sort of gone off on a different tangent of my life yeah. in a different direction. And my dad died in my final teacher training. So this would have been in the May, and uh, I was finished my teacher training in the June, and I was applying for jobs at the time. And I remember going for a classroom teacher's job in a school in Devon, in Oakhampton, uh, not long after my dad had died. And all that energy that I had to wanting to teach had gone. I was so flat that I didn't get a job. So I got some supply teaching in the September. And I also got back in contact with the university as well. And I started to do some small contracts, basically, sort of three, four days here. The money was good. It went with the part-time work that I was doing in schools on the supply rotor. So I suddenly had a two-track career, one where I was mm. teaching children and one where I was doing research. Hmm. So I had these two careers going on at the same time, both of which demand more of your time than they should. So being a primary school teacher, forever doing work at weekends and in the evening and things like that. Doing research, you know, it sort of goes into your evening time as well. So I'd made the conscious decision, this would have been around about 2004, because I really enjoyed the teaching. I really enjoyed the research. And I thought, whichever comes up full time first, that's the direction I'll go. So it's literally a fork in the road. And I had no preference of which direction to go. Mm. So it was serendipity. Hey, <laughs> nice link. Appreciate that. <laughs> literally was. And I had an interview in a school in back end of Devon. 
And the way sort of teaching interviews work, you, you're given a group of children that you have to teach or a class of children that you have to teach and you're observed. And then you have the interview and they sort of take the children's views into account. They take the observations into account and let the interview into account. And I remember coming out and I didn't really well. You know, I taught those children. They really enjoyed what I did. The interview went really well. So when the phone call came and they said to me, they said, couldn't fault the way you taught the children. It was really good. Couldn't fault the way that you interviewed. Really good. But your face don't fit. What? <laughs> your face don't fit. <laughs> they actually said your face doesn't fit. They used those exact words. And what did you take from that? At the time, I was speechless. And on the phone, I said, OK, and put the phone down because I just didn't know what to say. Yeah. It so happened that about two weeks later, I was offered full-time work at the university. So serendipity sort of went in that direction. It sort of intervened. And I, I see what you're saying, that, you know, it worked, it worked out all right in the end, but I'm just quite intrigued. Your face doesn't fit. What about I, your face didn't fit exactly? I have a funny feeling at the time, I probably had a very small nose stud in. And oh, was, Alan. And it was, it was very subtle. But I suppose being the back end of Devon, it was probably quite a conservative area. You know, not a political conservative, but a sort of... Wow. And I suspect that also you know, they had somebody in mind as well. It was not a way to sort of say, you haven't got a job. <laughs> no. You haven't got the job. <laughs> Incredible. You know, years later, you can look back on something like that and say, well... It didn't work out. That door shut, another one opened. I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, but it seems like maybe that's how you feel about this situation. Yeah, because like I said, I would have been happy to go either direction. So going mm. down and be a researcher in the university, that suited me just fine as well. So I really enjoyed you know, my work at Exeter. They call it, I came across a phrase, it's like a small crystal in time. The idea that something happens and then that becomes fixed. Mm. And, and from that fixed point, your sort of journey goes off in a different direction. Yeah. That's how I see it. Some people like keeping lots of doors open because having the choice is, is nice in its own right. But to take the choice is to shut all the other doors. It, it, you know, I mean, you could always go back if you like, couldn't you? But, but I have come across people who describe it like that, that they don't want to take the choice because mm -hmm. it means that all the possible choices have gone. I, what do you think? Yes and no, because I suppose once you've got a primary school teaching qualification, you can always go back because there's always demand for supply teaching. Mm. So I knew in the back of my mind that if the university route didn't work out, there was always a plan B, if you like. Of course, yes. Yeah. So... I started on the university working on contracts that would last six months. They mm. eventually became a year, two years, but they were always contracts. So when the money ran out, I was out the door. Right. So I lasted at the university from 2004 to 2013 on lots of contracts. Gosh, that Even, sounds quite stressful. It, it was quite stressful. You have a fund, if you like, an unemployment fund that you create in case the contracts don't match up and you've got a bit of gap in between. That never happened to me, fortunately. And I could have stayed on at Exeter because they were trying to get some more contracts together. It wouldn't have been full time. 
but a job came up in Scotland, which I thought I'd go for because that was full time. And there was supposed to be a, a large research project that I'd be working on. Right. So the next stage was Scotland's Rural College. That's right. Again, off to another part of the country. Yes. What attracted you to that? Some of it was I got fed up of being on contracts. You'd always be worrying sort of three, six, three months before the contract would finish what was going to happen. And I think I wanted a job that was settled in the sense that it was full time, permanent. So the lure of a permanent job with a quite a large research project took me north of the border to where my father was born. <laughs> it was a bit of a culture shock going up there because it is different. But it's... Was it like in Wales? Was there that divide? No, Scottish people are much more friendly. <laughs> what happened when I arrived at the Scotland's Rural College was within three weeks, the money that was attached to this big contract I was going to be working on this project for, which was something like 60-70% of my time would be spent on this decision-making project, turned out there was no money. It had been reallocated within the institution. So I found myself doing lots of little projects again. <laughs> one of the reasons I moved from Exeter because I I was doing lots of little projects but you never had time to write any papers because you're always on one little project to the next little project and there was nothing ever substantial so I found myself in exactly the same situation sort of within three or four weeks I became depressed I didn't realize I was depressed at the time it's only in hindsight you realize that you are so after a year, I resigned and made oh myself unemployed. <laughs> wow. And she, my wife said to me, the day that I resigned, I came back a different person. In what sense? It was, she said it was like a weight had been lifted off me. She said I was, well, she said she got her, her old Alan back. I hadn't realised how far down I'd gone during that mm. year. The institution itself had quite a lot of problems there was a lot of infighting within the institution there'd be contracts coming up that people would be put forward for but other people would be excluded things like that there were sort of relationships issues you had to negotiate which I was fine at doing because I'd work with both sides it wasn't a problem with me and I did work with both sides but I think it was doing the short-term projects it was getting used to the Scottish winters long dark so yeah I became depressed over that period and ended up resigning and I've had depression as well and one of the things that I discovered about it was that it isn't this thing that hits you like that there's a change in your mental state but there's a change in your physical state as well but it's very gradual Mm -hmm. and if you don't know what to look out for and if those around you don't know what to look out for then kind of becomes as your wife put it that becomes you that's the new Alan Yes. You know, and she's yeah. kind of got used to it. Yeah. And then it's only when that, there was that sudden break and she was like, I remember what you used to be like. Mm. Gosh. One of the things that interplayed with it as well was the dyslexia. Because mm. the more I got depressed, the more my dyslexic traits would come out in my work. Is that right? So I remember giving something to my line manager and he was quite abrupt in what he said he said something like I wouldn't expect this from an undergraduate student and I knew I was better than that but I didn't know why I couldn't do it so I think it was all part of being depressed and stressed and I think the way the brain must work it must take shortcuts and 
the dyslexia came out worse. Funnily enough, it takes a lot of energy to be depressed, to push things down, to to hide the, those feelings that are that your mind is actually trying to push down. And so it doesn't leave much space for anything else. That's part of the problem. So it, I, I see what you're saying mm. about this idea that there's no space left for your brain to concentrate it's so hard to overcome the dyslexia. And where does that leave you? You've left without a job to go to. Where do you pick yourself up from there? I bought myself a little internet business. <laughs> right, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> which didn't work out. <laughs> Selling pet stuff. Okay. But what it did allow me to do, it allowed me to sort of go back and read some of the books that I'd bought, which I'd never got around to reading. So there was this one book by a chap called Eric Bienhocker, if I've pronounced his name right, who's an Oxford academic, who'd wrote about complexity economics. So how economics embraces complexity. Or, you know, sort of how it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> so I did an, an awful lot of reading and I did some courses as well people like Future Learn, Santa Fe Institute. And I also went back and did some part-time teaching. So I got myself on the supply list, which took a long time, and ended up teaching in a local primary school full-time for a term. And I was really enjoying life, actually. I, you know, that second year in Scotland, it was really enjoyable, you know, because I had income coming in. I was enjoying what I was doing. I, I was really enjoying the sort of what I was calling scholarly activity of learning about complexity. And a message popped into my LinkedIn saying, Alan, I think you need to apply for this job. It was from somebody I knew from University of Gloucester, and they had a position for a researcher coming up there. I put a lot of effort into the application and got an interview. And I remember going along to the interview, and I had a really good interview, but I played down one of my skill sets. <laughs> so I played down my econometric skills because... I can do econometrics, but I don't find it the most interesting. So when the phone call came and said, you're very close second, but the person we gave it to just had better econometric skills. <laughs> oh, you don't want to hear that, do you? Very close second. <laughs> but shortly after that, a job came up being advertised for the Royal Agricultural University for an economics lecturer. Mm. And because I put so much effort into this application in Gloucestershire, there wasn't a huge amount of difference in terms of what I needed to do to turn it into an application for this lecturing job. I was offered the job at the Royal Agricultural University, spent five years teaching students economics. That fork in the road kind of came back together again there in the sense that you're teaching, albeit not primary school level. It seems like you managed to combine those two things again. That was part of my reasoning, actually, for going for the job. Was right. because you know there was the, the research side of it, which and also the teaching side it turned out to be a lot more teaching than research. But I did sort of think actually it was those paths in the road coming back together, and it is surprising that you know if you can teach young children, teaching adults, there's differences, but they're not huge differences. And did you enjoy it? Um, on the whole, yes, it had its good parts in terms of. You'd get some really good relationships, particularly with the postgraduate students and some PhD students as well. What I also enjoyed was the scholarly work that I did when I was in Scotland around complexity. I started to bring into the courses, the modules that I was developing. Yeah. So it actually brought new skills for the students to learn to how to understand when they come across situations that are complex, to understand you know, why things aren't straightforward, 
in the world of work and what they go out and do. So it was quite interesting that, you know, the students that took that particular module, they used to say things like, you know, I, I see the world totally differently now. So you, you sort of felt you were making a difference, which was good. So I actually brought it up to speed in terms of introducing new theories and economics to them, pointing out the difficulties of applying economics to real world situations and what else you might do instead. It was really interesting from, from that perspective. And are those the courses that you're now thinking you're going to put on YouTube? The complexity ones, yes. Yes, indeed. Okay. I'm going to call it something like making sense of complex of a complex world. Just finishing off then, one of the questions that I've been wrestling with actually came from my experience of depression. And it's about success and what success is. What do you think success is? Or what does it mean for you? I guess success for me has been, when I think about it, it's setting yourself a goal and trying to achieve it the best you can. And that goal, it might not work out straight away as you expect. But I think if you're tenacious and carry on, then you can reach it. But I think also that success, you can reach that goal and not be happy. In some ways, it's being happy at the end as well. It's finding a a balance between achieving an ambition that you've got, but also doing it in a way that makes you content. Mm. This kind of cuts to the heart of it. It's trying to work out what is ambitious enough. I think it's knowing yourself a little bit as well, isn't it? So it's knowing what you're capable of, in a sense, because I think the journey that I went on, I knew there were seeds of something inside me and some people along the way identified what they might be. And on reflection, I could point myself in the right direction. In some ways, success, I guess, is learning from people, reflecting on what they see in you as well, to be able to to just to get to where you want to get, whatever that is. What can I say? It's, it's been a real pleasure. Brilliant. Thank you, Matt. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Alan for taking the time to talk to me and for being so honest and open about his fantastically intriguing career to date. Thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork to Anna Gunn for editing, to Acast for hosting, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, message me on LinkedIn, or tweet me using the handle at soupserendipity. Thanks again for listening, and see you soon for another serving.